0: Talks on psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society Journals and Congress Debates Worldwide, brought to you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. I am Gaetano Pellegrini and in today's episode Maria Teresa Huck past president of the Australian Psychoanalytical Society and past chair of the IPA Committee on New Groups, welcomes Timothy Keogh, current president of the Australian Psychoanalytical Society. He will present a modified version of a commentary published in the inaugural issue of the International Journal of Forensic Psychotherapy on Neville Sigminton's classic paper called The Response, Aroused by the Psychopath, published in 1980. He highlights the Navy's lesser-known contribution to forensic psychoanalysis and to present a view on this concept from the perspective of a contemporary psychoanalyst.
1: It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Timothy Keogh, who will speak on a topic not often discussed in psychoanalysis forensic psychoanalysis and this experience as a psychoanalyst working with juvenile and adult violent offenders in the corrective system, the prisons in Sydney. This requires courage, curiosity for the human condition and the social conscience. As you will see, this is also testified by Dr. Keogh other areas of work aboriginal australian couple and families the asia pacific region and the relationship between psychoanalysis and other psychotherapy models in australia dr keogh is a psychoanalyst forensic psychologist and a couple and family psychotherapist he has 30 years' experience working with offenders in a variety of clinical and executive roles in both juvenile justice and corrective service in Australia, including statewide director of inmate services and programmes. A governor-appointed member of the Mental Health Tribunal, Civil and Forensic, He also recently led the establishment of the Australian Forensic Psychotherapy Association, of which he is the first president. Dr. Keogh also has a strong commitment to indigenous issues and is on the Scientific Advisory Board of CASE, a psychoanalytically oriented charity that provides an Aboriginal programme in Central Australia. He also had a key role in establishing and is current president of a psychoanalytic charity, Pentos, immediate past vice president of the International Association of Couple and Families Psychoanalysis, a member of the IPA Committee on Couple and Family Psychoanalysis, and Vice President of the Australian Confederation of Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy. He is Senior Lecturer at the Sydney Medical School, University of Sydney, and a Visiting Professor of the Medical School of the University of Wuhan in China. He authored Through a Glass Darkly and is Editor of Psychoanalytic Approaches to Loss, and interpretation in couple and family psychoanalysis.
2: It is a privilege to have been asked to participate in this IPA podcast series. When contemplating what I might discuss, I thought that I'd like to dedicate my podcast to an esteemed member of the Australian Psychoanalytical Society, Neville Symington, who who sadly passed away in late 2019. Neville, who was known internationally for his psychoanalytic publications, was also acknowledged by the IPA for his contribution to psychoanalysis by making him a recipient of the prestigious Sigourney Award. One of Neville's lesser-known contributions, however, is his writing in the area of forensic psychoanalysis In 2019, um, uh, earlier in that year prior to his death, I'd been asked to contribute a commentary on his classic paper published in the International Review of Psychoanalysis in 1980, entitled The Response Aroused by the Psychopath. I was asked to contribute this commentary to the inaugural issue of the International Journal of Forensic Psychotherapy, Uh, which was launched uh, actually at the uh, IPA Congress in London. I'd now like to share some sections of my commentary with you and uh, in addition to discuss what I think are some of the important psychoanalytic considerations when addressing psychopathy in patients we might encounter in our clinical practice. At the outset, let me say I'm comfortably aligned to Symington's implicit view that forensic psychoanalysis offers a richness of understanding and an associated coherent approach to treating such patients that, in my view, is lacking in mainstream psychological and psychiatric approaches. These approaches, um, in contrast, focus primarily on the behavioural dimensions of the psychopathology. From that vertex, the psychopathic offender when he's seen to be amenable to intervention, is seen to be best helped by altering his conscious thoughts, despite the fact that the main feature of psychopathic behaviour could be seen to be the lack of normal affect. In Symington's 1980 article, he uses a central character in Emily Bronte's novel Wuthering Heights the character of Heathcliff, to, to illustrate his view of the internal world of the psychopath. Heathcliff is a good choice, as he's not the typical romantic hero, one who may be initially brooding and cold, only later to be revealed as a kind and sensitive soul. Instead, he's an arch-villain who's revealed to be increasingly malevolent. Earnshaw, who adopts Heathcliff, has a dream early in the novel about a frightening, ghostly figure attempting to enter the family house. The dreams seem apposite to the reality of the historical period of the novel, 1840s England, a time of wretched poverty in industrial towns such as Liverpool, where Earnshaw had found Heathcliff where conditions had been described like a living hell. Here, privileged classes feared some horrible revolt and revenge from the group that Heathcliff could be seen to represent. Notwithstanding Bronte's intention to weave in this historical reality to her novel, she also seemed focused on exploring an individual character type that was equally threatening, And for whom revenge was a central driver. So, from this perspective, the dream can be seen to be prescient as well as psychoanalytically relevant. Symington refers to the revenge motive of Heathcliff, ascribed to him by Bronte, to explain the seemingly paradoxical idea that the problems of the psychopath were attributable to emotional conflicts in particular those regarding his mother. Moreover, he suggests how such a psychoanalytic understanding can help us make sense of our response to such patients and how this can lead to a fruitful analysis of their potentially catastrophic difficulties. To adumbrate his view, Symington draws on the psychoanalytic understandings of Freud Klein, Glover and Hyatt-Williams concerning psychopathy, which have highlighted how seductive it can be to regard its manifestations as an indication of an inherent lack of humanity rather than an obfuscation of the need for relationship resulting from overwhelming psychic pain at a time when the psychic apparatus was insufficient to process it. Bolby too, had suggested that such individuals detach from their emotions, thus enabling them at times to enact horrific destructiveness and violence with others. In line with these views, Symington suggests that this is all the psychopath has at his disposal to deal with his psychic dilemmas. He proposes that the psychopathic individual has undergone, quote, An experience of sadness so intense that it's not experienced consciously, but is dispersed through the personality in the form of ruthlessness and despair. He further adds that this happens at a stage of psychic development characterized by a lack of separation and individuation from his primary maternal object. Moreover, he argues that so much of the psychopath's motivations can be accurately predicted using this vertex of understanding. In particular, the psychopath's need to deal with his murderous, revengeful rage towards his primary object, who is maddeningly indistinguishable from himself, as illustrated by Heathcliff's relationship with another character in the novel, Catherine Earnshaw. Catherine, incidentally, decides to forego her passionate feelings and relationships with Heathcliff and marry Edgar, who is from her own social class and can offer her a comfortable life. Heathcliff feels intense rejection as a result of her decision, which awakens his early, early maternal object conflicts. So Symington helps us to think about the psychopath's dilemma with regard to his absence of normal affect, including empathy. In this regard, he helps us to appreciate a particular response to the psychopath, namely our potential collusion with him, our resort to disbelief about his actions, or alternatively, condemnation of him. This response can be seen to result from the very primitive mechanisms employed by the psychopath, especially massive projective identification. He further notes that being cyclically provoked in this way can lead to defensive manoeuvres, which can not only lead us to moralising about and politicising psychopathy, which is so common in the criminal justice system, but can also seriously disable our attempts to understand and help him. His views in this regard um, align with those of Hyatt William, who wrote about the death constellation. He noted the imbalance of the destructive and constructive elements in the personality that co-occur with a combination of constitutional and environmental issues. He suggested that when this imbalance coalesces into a character trait, the person has to kill off whatever is too painful. Hyatt-Williams, however, argued that it is possible to establish a relationship in which mourning and remorse may become possible in order to help such a patient find his more human potential. As such, he stressed that mourning, whilst an essential ingredient for all mental health, is especially efficacious in the processing of murderousness arising from the death constellation. The notion of the psychopath as an individual characterised by an absence of any apparent emotional response can be traced back to Philippe Pinel, who had first suggested that there were a group of patients suffering from what he termed mani sans d'hilaire, insanity without delirium. This was in 1801. Psychopathy now is regarded as a personality um, disorder. Drawing heavily on Cleckley's work, um, Originally in the 1940s, Hare described psychopathy as consisting of a characteristic pattern of interpersonal, affective and behavioural symptoms such that on an interpersonal levels, psychopaths are shown to be grandiose, egocentric, manipulative, forceful and cold-hearted. In terms of their affect, according to Hare, who... They display shallow and labile emotions and are unable to form long lasting bonds to people, principles, and goals. They experience little anxiety, genuine guilt, or remorse. Hare also sees that behaviourally psychopaths are impulsive and sensation seeking and readily violate social norms. The most obvious expressions of these predispositions, he says, quote, involve criminality, substance abuse, and a failure to fulfil social obligations and responsibilities, end quote. So that's Hare writing in 1991. Violent psychopaths demonstrate a behavioural pathway to increasingly aggressive behaviour usually manifesting in escalating violent crime for which there is little, if any, remorse. Violence is, however, not a feature of all psychopaths, with notable exceptions being the so-called corporate psychopath and fraudster or con man. Violence when perpetrated by a psychopath is typified by being cold, calculating and callous rather than reactive, and hot-headed, as in the case of the Paranoid Personality Disorder. Recent work on the neurophysiological underpinnings of different types of violence confirms this ablation of an effective response in the psychopath. These these ideas, I believe, are also consistent with Damasi's recent ideas about the difference between what he refers to as an emotional unconscious and a cognitive unconscious, and I need to understand the role of each in certain types of pathology, including, of course, psychosis. Malloy had also pointed out that the neurophysiology underpinning the so-called sadistic violence compared to the predatory violence found in psychopaths is also quite different his categorization of violence is similar to that described by Glasser, who, in articulating the core complex that underpins violence, that is, a complex linked to the desire for merger with the maternal objects, suggests that it can be seen as a continuum that encompasses at the one end a self-preservative violence where violence is seen to be in response to threats to the sense of self, to a sadomasochistic violence which appears random and detached from any such threat. Such predatory or sadomasochistic violence that seems hard to comprehend results in acts of violence that Alvarez has referred to as representing motive malignity. Many researchers and theoreticians have stressed a biological basis for psychopathy. However, most research data describe biological correlates rather than causes of psychopathy. In terms of genetic evidence, there are some consistent findings derived from twin and adoption studies of a genetic loading to psychopathy and some evidence that neuroanatomical irregularities underpin some psychopathic behaviour. For example, psychopaths have been shown to have abnormal levels of frontotemporal lobe activation during a word task involving emotional and non-emotional challenges. Linked to this, they also inhibit dysfunction in the amygdala and ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which contributes to the poor processing of emotional experience and, relatedly, of course, low tolerance to frustration. In a review of neuroimaging studies in 2005, Pridmore and colleagues provided evidence that of dysfunction of a particular frontal and temporal lobe structures in psychopathy. They noted evidence of decreased prefrontal gray matter and posterior hippocampal volume, some evidence of reduced metabolism in the frontal cortex and dysfunction to the right anterior temporal gyrus. Overall, however, the authors concluded that the research about brain dysfunction in psychopaths was inconclusive. Now, there are also a number of studies identifying developmental precursors to psychopathy in childhood. Um, Developmental theorists have argued, for example, that psychopathy is an endpoint of a behavioural pathway commencing early in childhood, with the development of psychopathy subject to similar factors stressed by attachment theorists in their explanations of psychopathology. Psychopathy initially manifests in early hyperactivity and impulsivity in early childhood and is followed by the development of pronounced oppositional, defiant symptomatology and later conduct disorder, it's a sort of DSM-type categories, This can later develop into antisocial personality disorder and ultimately psychopathy. Such developmental aberrations are linked to a variety of factors of which attachment appears to be the most significant. In the famous Cambridge study of delinquent behaviour, Farrington back in 2000 reported that there's a temporal stability of antisocial traits confirming the previous views of always. Antisocial males measured at the age of 18 years remain the most antisocial at the age of 32 years. In the study, Farrington demonstrated that it is possible to predict antisocial behaviour. In particular, two-thirds of boys aged eight years who are described with factors thought to be predictive of antisocial behaviour are confirmed as antisocial personalities by the age of 18. The most significant predictors in the study were large family size, parents who'd been convicted of criminal offences, low intelligence or attainment on part of the child, as well as inconsistent child-rearing practices. Many of these factors related to the quality of attachment level of abuse and neglect and maltreatment that these individuals experienced in their childhood. Psychopathy, therefore, appears to follow a developmental progression. It's also associated with and predictive of recidivism, offending versatility, a tendency to violent offences and rehabilitation resistance and failure. Rorschach findings show that that psychopathy is also correlated with borderline and narcissistic personality dimensions and that psychopaths show less attachment and less anxiety than non-psychopaths, factors that appear to facilitate, of course, their remorseless violence. In terms of the psychoanalytic understanding of psychopathy, I feel there's great heuristic value to be mined from considering developments in theories about psychopathy developed since the time when Symington first authored his classic paper. For me, this includes a focus on the role of severe pathological narcissism and the role it plays in the dynamics and phenomenology of psychopathy and the unique nature of the primitive object relations found to be linked with it. I believe a consideration of the role of forms of severe pathological narcissism leads to a unique and helpful understanding of one's response to an experience of being in the presence of a psychopath, especially the experience of being objectified and duped by him. This is, uh, in fact, an essential hurdle that needs to be negotiated and is a precursor to a helpful breakdown to a paranoid transference to which uh, it gives way. This must subject subsequently, therefore, be courageously endured and interpreted in order to achieve a fruitful analytic process. In this regard, Kernberg has highlighted that psychopathy represents the most extreme of all narcissistic pathologies, regarding it as a more severe pathology than malignant narcissism, which Fromm had described, quote, as the most severe pathology and the root of most of vicious destructiveness and inhumanity, end quote. Malloy also describes, uh, also subscribes to the view concerning a basic failure of internalization accompanied by severe narcissistic psychopathology, primitive internalized object relations, and superego abnormalities. And Malloy was uh, writing there in 2001. In such a developmental context, I see the self as experiencing trauma and rejection by its object, which results in an implicit turning away from the object, involving massive splitting and projection. This often results from the psychopath's abuse experiences with their objects and the consequent investment in a relationship with the self, which becomes so exclusive that others are not just responded to as self-objects, but objects that are manipulated and ruthlessly used by the self as he becomes more intoxicated by his own omnipotence and grandiosity. Contemporary psychoanalytic theorists have also attempted to integrate psychoanalysis with findings from other disciplines. Malloy again writing in 2001 for example and influenced by attachment theory suggested quote the house of psychopathy is built on a psychobiological foundation of no attachment under arousal and minimal anxiety end quote i feel this description provides a very useful therapeutic compass and a functional view of the psychic topography of the psychopath which can help the analyst understand his defensive bastion as well as the conning or duping transference relationships that he develops uh, with the analyst and of course with others a further important contribution to our understanding of psychopathy i believe has been that of the concept of the stranger self-object Uh, This is a um, concept introduced by Grotstein in 1982 and elaborated later by Malloy uh, around 1997. Uh, Malloy argued that the process of internalisation of this stranger self object involves a precocious separation from his primary object that occurs during the symbiotic phase of maturation. I think this helps us to understand how the psychopath needs to relate to the analyst and reveals his developmental failures. These include, as Hart-Williams pointed out, basic failures of maternal containment. Moreover, Malloy notes, quote, failures of internalisation that actually begin with an organismic distrust of their sensory perceptual environment, a predominant archetypal identification with the stranger self-object that is central to the conceptual self and object fusions within the grandiose self-structure, and that what results is a primary narcissistic state of attachment to the grandiose self and states of relatedness that are aggressively and sadomasochistically pursued with actual objects, end quote. In terms of clinical challenges, in the clinical situation, one often finds typically there's a sequence of events that unfold in the analytic process linked uh, to these above-mentioned failures. Key amongst these uh, is an initial therapeutic relationship with the analyst where the analysand patient wishes to gain an omnipotent control over the analyst by clever and seductive means that often involve duping or conning him When one experiences a countertransference that is consistently a feeling of having the wall pulled over one's eyes or being used for the patient's purpose, Um, uh, one is aware of this uh, being in this territory. And interestingly, um, the patient himself usually lacks any insight that the analyst may be able to see through this. This illustrates the problem that the psychopath has in actually being able to understand and perceive the state of mind of the other, and therefore being relatively incapable of uh, any empathy. Um, This uh, relates to research, of course, that's been done on um, uh, theory of mind mechanisms, In cases where uh, the therapeutic relationship develops and this modus operandi of the psychopathic patient is broken down, the relationship can collapse, as I said earlier, into a more paranoid relationship where the analyst can be seen to be um, a threatening object. At this point, uh, and this, of course, related to massive splitting and projection, at this point, with some patients, the analyst can be in some real danger as the patient may feel they have to be destroyed, in some cases literally. This is particularly with uh, the case with um, violent offenders um, uh, and, and others with a history of violent offences and, um, of course, um, raises the issue about Uh, the conditions under which one might consider offering therapeutic interventions uh, with reference to one's own safety. In working with such a patient, in addition to understanding one's response to the psychopathic behaviour and working with the associated transference, one also then needs to understand, in relation to Simingson's paper, the pressure to collude to him as with him, as well as at times to deal with one's own feelings of disbelief or feelings of condemnation. One ultimately needs to understand something about the hatred of his object and his need to turn himself in such an uh, turn to himself um, and rely on himself in such an extreme way. I believe that one needs to allow oneself to feel the set of somewhat alien. Emotional experiences, in order to be able to move into a more transformative zone with the patient or an Alexander. Moreover, this requires um, one's allowing one's countertransference to the patient. I believe to spawn uh, images and ideas that can facilitate uh, the emergence of metaphors that can begin to be utilised as starting points for the development of more adequate symbolic functioning in the um, patient. All of this work, of course, needs to be contained in a relationship that's solid enough um, to facilitate the integration of the patient's murderous rage and the associated guilt he would have to bear so as not to need to resort to suicide. Such experiences in the analytic relationship with a psychopathic patient remind me of Alvarez's reflection on Symington's trio of responses to the psychopath. She noted, quote, that in order to avoid this trio of collusion, denial and condemnation it is importantly, firstly, to avoid the last, that is, Instead of condemnation, it is necessary to look evil straight in the eye. She goes on, this implies not evading the full bleakness and horror of the patient's impulses, nor the inadequacy or foolishness of their internal objects and of ourselves in the transference. End quote. In concluding my brief consideration of clinical issues with psychopathic patients, I'd like to return to Neville Symington's classic paper and say that I feel this paper leaves forensic psychoanalysts with a lasting legacy. The Australian Psychoanalytical Society is very proud to have had a member who has made such a rich contribution to the psychoanalytic understanding of psychopathy and in speaking to my colleagues worldwide I'm very pleased to have been able to highlight some of these with you in this podcast. Thank you.